you're gonna get free this time Falling into a blue sky mind At that point, they taught me that I could still be strong without being violent, that I could still be strong because I have a voice. You get to look in the mirror and it's like, I'm putting in this work and I am an amazing person and I have been built for a purpose and um, I have a right to live and I have a right to recover. I have a right to feel comfortable in my own skin and I have a right to um, love myself, you know, regardless, like we are not our mistakes, we're our healing. That was Benita Leonard. Benita, thank you for the courage, for the power, for shining your light so brightly over these moments that we've shared together. It reminds me of a passage from the spiritual tradition that I grew up in and have lived in. And it talks about this beautiful exchange of beauty for ashes, love for hate, a warm blanket for a cold stone. And that's what I felt as we uh, walked through this conversation, that I felt the transformation of a heart full of pain, a life full of pain and trauma transformed into one of beauty, light, and the fire of love and compassion. Stay tuned all the way through this because the conversation just gets deeper and more profound. I also want to remind all of us that Sriponia is going to be holding a healing circle online at becomingaheart.org. It will begin January 11th at 6 p.m. And all are invited. We look forward to seeing you, hearing you, and holding that safe space for us to heal together. <laughs> so I'm sitting here today for this episode of Shri Ponya's One Breath podcast with Bonita Leonard here at Warm Springs. And um, in fact, we're in a studio at KWSO. And uh, Bonita, thanks for taking the time to sit here with me and have a conversation. Yeah. Get acquainted. I've yeah. seen you around town at Native Aspirations and things like that. but. Yeah. Yeah, it's good to finally meet you and sit down and, and get acquainted. Yeah. So how long have you been he here in Warm Springs? I moved here in Warm Springs about two years ago. Um, I grew up in Madras in Culver. Grew up in Madras, um, rode horses, did rodeo and all that. When I, my younger years, used to work on a farm to ride horses because I loved horses so much. And then um, as I got older, things happened and started going into my addiction. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Describe that a little bit. Um, well, I, when I was younger, my, um, we had a lot, lot of tough times. Um, my mom accepted two of my cousins in her household, 
they were going through a hard time in their family's lives. And then um, I was sexually molested by one of them. And um, at such a young age, I learned that um, I, I should feel sorry for other people and put my feelings aside, you know. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that because I was young. And I was always told to, like, feel sorry for her because she went through a lot of stuff, which she did. But um, it just seemed like the things that I went through was never validated. And then I got a counselor and stuff like that, and he moved away. And um, as I got older, you know, I just kind of learned to keep my feelings inside, you know, and um, be there for people who had it harder than me. And then um, I got into horses. I loved horses ever since I was young. I um, always wanted a Pegasus unicorn. (laughs) (laughs) And then um, I had a lady, Gladys Grant. She used to allow me to work on her farm, and we'd ride her horses all day. And then when I was about 10 years old, my brother surprised me and got permission from my mom to buy me a horse. And I got on a horse. When I first seen him, I was in love, but I was sad. And he's like, why are you sad? And I'm like, well, I kind of want a Pegasus unicorn. And and then he's like... Well, of course, at 10 years old, you'd still want a Pegasus unicorn. (laughs) And then he's like, I'll tell you a story about your horse. And I was like, okay. And he's like, all the horses. He's like, a long time ago, they all used to have a unicorn and they were made of gold. And he's like, but then these settlers came and they got greedy and they wanted to cut all the unicorns' horns off because of the gold. And the gold made the humans greedy. He's like, so the horses um, seen that what was going on. So they came together and made a pact that they wouldn't grow the unicorns anymore to keep the people from fighting. And then so I was like, oh, I love my horse. Wow. (laughs) So I thought he was a unicorn. (laughs) Now, how old was your brother at the time? Because that is, that's, what a great. Yeah. What a great story. I'm pretty sure he's in his 20s. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I lost him when I was like 14 or 15 in 96. He was driving down the grade of Warm Springs, and um, a deer hopped out in front of their truck, and um, he veered off to miss it, and then the truck ended up rolling over the grade. Mm-hmm. And then um, we lost him, and I took that really hard because he was like my best friend, my father figure. Um, my trainer with my horses and stuff like that. I won the Jackie Pyle Memorial Award when I was riding horses, and I made it to state um, at the age of 14. Wow. Yeah, and then so we all took that hard. He was a big piece of our family. Our family kind of separated, and it was hard getting us all together after that Mm -hmm. until the recent years. Yeah. Yeah. And did that contribute to you finding a substance to alleviate the pain or? Yeah, um, I started drinking. Um, my cousins would hang out with these guys and they would drink and um, we got introduced to cocaine. Um, and then it was crank at that time. And then um, it, ca- it happened gradually over time, you know, and around that time I used to go pick up my friend cause she said her mom's boyfriend was touching her and making her uncomfortable. So I'd go pick her up and help her with her homework. And there was these Mexicans that lived in that area that would tell us to take this little bag to these different houses and stuff. And they paid us like $75. And then that's how I was interested. I was introduced to drug dealing and stuff. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know it was in the bag. They told us not to look in it. Mm -hmm. But all I was thinking is like, oh, I can buy my friend burritos and CDs and tape cassettes and we can get candy. So that's what we were thinking <laughs> when that's, we were little. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, introduced to a trade that is just full of shadow and all that stuff and mm-hmm. and uh, to approach it from that perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, the innocence yeah. that we have as kids. Yep. <laughs> and, and then until the innocence 
starts to be taken away from us. Yeah. You know. Mm -hmm. And then I was kidnapped. Like, um, I can't remember what what year it was, but I remember my mom used to let us walk to the store to get um, sodas or candy or whatever. It wasn't that far from our house. And then we were walking, and then we heard, like, a door open. And um, I turned around, and they stuck a potato sack over my head and threw us in the van. And they took us out, and I remember my mom telling us to always look for something. If we could see something, like remember something so that they could find us. And through the little bitty holes in those potato sacks, I, I, I just remember the blinking light. And now that I'm older, I'm thinking it was the blinking light going into Redmond. And I remember we turned on that blinking light, and they kidnapped us and, you know, did horrible things to, to me and one of my friends for a few days until my mom got a hold of somebody to help them find us and they found us and um, they made me call my mom and tell her to not call the cops or anything or they were going to kill us and she's like no they won't and I'm like there's actually a gun to my head I can remember what they were cooking I could smell the bacon and I can see white powder on the table I didn't know what that was at that point and um, um, I didn't think I was going to see my mom again and so she she agreed or I don't know what they were saying on the phone after that but she promised that she wouldn't do that as long as they brought me home. And I remember they just threw us in the van again with the potato sacks and just threw us out by my road. And I was just like, don't look back, just keep going. Hmm. And there was never any repercussions for anybody after that. My mom told me to, because we didn't know who these people were. My mom told me to um, just hold my head up, you know, keep dressing up, um, to keep going forward in life. And so, again, I was learnt, taught how to suppress my emotions. But as a very emotional person, I think that it wore on me because I didn't know what to do with them. And um, after that, I realized I didn't want to feel that vulnerable vulnerable in life again. Mm-hmm. So I learned how to fight. Um, I got in a lot of fights. And um, I just would use that anger for what happened to me that night or those days to help protect me through life. And everybody always said it was a man's world and we're just women living in it, you know. Mm. So I felt like if I I needed to hold my ground in this world that I had to be like a man and hold my ground. Mm. So um, that's where all the fighting began. Started drinking heavily and then getting into drugs heavily because um, when I first started, um, started crank, I realized that I didn't have to think about anything. It took, it gave me a euphoric feeling where I didn't think of anything. I just thought about that moment and it took all those thoughts away. And so I just wanted everything to go away. So that's when I started becoming more and more addicted. Mm. Mm. And how long did that last? That lasted all up until 2015. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. It, it was, it was a hell of a run then. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and then um, I think when my brother died, I became a full-blown alcoholic. Mm. I didn't know what alcoholism was then, and I remember waking up, hiding beers, and I had the shakes, and I just, you know, wanted to drink because I don't want to think about life. I don't want to think about losing my brother, um, about my mom crying and being by herself and having that guilt that I wasn't there for her that day when she had to hear that her son died, mm. and I carried that guilt for a long time for not being there. Yeah, I... Um, you know, you you have been on this path of recovery for a while now, yeah. and and you've mentioned what it was like for you to 
stuff your feelings and not have emotion and then let that not only not have emotion but turn it into rage yeah for protection Mm -hmm. how have you what what have you found to begin to like heal all of that Uh, have you you know found in addition to recovery have you been working uh, in therapy and and um in that type of work as well, in what's the, what has been your path? In the treatment I went into was actually I got pr- a sentence to prison in 2015. Um, I was clean before that. I had three years at that. I think I had one, maybe two. I don't know. I, there's numerous of times where I had a lot of recovery time, but that time I think I had a couple years. And um, I went to prison. And I went into treatment, and they not only dealt with my drug problem, but they dealt with my mental health. Mm. And I think that, and then my criminality. And I think those were the things that were missing in my life. Like, I've been to plenty of treatments where they told me I was an addict. Um, just, and then some of them I lied to and just said I was an alcoholic because I wasn't ready to let go of meth. I wasn't ready to, to let go of something that has helped me tremendously deal with my emotions. I wasn't ready to let go of anger. I wasn't ready to let go of that lifestyle because then who would I be if I let that go? I accumulated a whole lifestyle around gangs, around um, drugs, and being tough, you know? And so um, at that point, they taught me that I could still be strong without being violent, that I could still be strong because I have a voice and I have boundaries and um, that um, I have a right to be safe, not just physically, but I have a right to be safe mentally. Mm. But first I had to look, take a look at myself, a big look at who I was and what my belief system was and how could we turn that around to carry that same strength, but to carry forward with healing. Wow, that, that is a powerful transformation. I, you know, how, what was it that finally started to like get through the defensiveness and the, you know, the anger, how, was it, was it a particular person that began to be able to speak to you in a way that you could relate to? How did that transformation begin to really happen? I think that I feel like that I, everybody's rock bottom looks different, but I feel like I hit my rock bottom. I had an abortion and I couldn't forgive myself for having an abortion because I was like, how could I kill my own baby? You know, and um, even though I had my reasonings behind it, that broke my heart that I did that, you know, and um, I seen my baby's heartbeat and stuff and it just killed me and I kept it a secret. And then, of course, I used meth and then my family didn't want to talk to me. You know, my oldest son, you know, he really, really wanted a relationship with me and I was always just running off. And this time, you know, when I went to prison, nobody wanted to talk to me. My family didn't want anything to do with me. Every time I called, like, they shut me down and, you know, said, hey, you're on your own. Like, if you want a relationship with us, then you need to prove to us. Like, every time you've gotten in trouble, we've been there. Every time that you needed us, we've been there. This time, we're not going to do it anymore. And so they set healthy boundaries with me, which, to me, I felt like I was dying. And I, I realized, like... This addiction has made me lose everything. And I took a look around at my surroundings when I was in prison. And I was like, is this all there is for me? And um, I felt sorry for myself for a long time until I started getting really close to my higher power, 
creator, you know, and I started praying every day like, hey, I don't know what to do with my life, but if you have something to do with my life, then do it. Because at this point, I just feel like there's no reason to live. Like I lost my family. I, I'd done things that, you know, I said I would never do. And um, I just feel really ashamed of the woman looking at myself in that mirror. And um, doors started opening. You know, the more close I got with Creator, my higher power, doors started opening. Some of them I liked, some of them I didn't like. But every single one of them has helped me evolve into this woman that I didn't know I had in me. And when I looked around at everybody that was surrounding me, it was like the same story over and over again. You know, they say that um, insanity is doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results. And that's exactly what I was doing. Even though I had different plans, it gave me the same result. Yeah, we talk about our intentions. Yeah. Most of us have pretty good intentions. Yeah. But what we actually choose to do and, and the actions we take and the behaviors we live into usually don't match with those intentions until something arrives in our life that, you know, whatever it is that gets through the fog mm-hmm. of anger, resentment. I was just sharing with a with a, uh, a, a guy yesterday that, you know, I grew up a really angry person. Mm-hmm. And then that led into my own addiction and alcoholism for a couple of decades. Yeah. For a long time. And, you know, I, I woke up, started the, the path of getting sober, but it took me a long time to find healing for that, just that rage mm-hmm. and anger. Yeah. And that has, that's been a lifetime of work. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yep. And I think the biggest thing was realizing that I didn't have to be the toughest one physically that I could be tough in different ways. And when I started learning about my culture and my roots and what my ancestors had went through, you know, um, in the past, and I carried a lot of that anger as well, that the one way I could honor not just them or my family is to stand up and utilize the fight that I have within to advocate for people, to advocate for um, the community, to advocate for my family, to raise my children to know who they are as indigenous people, but at the same time, utilize that anger, Mm. like utilize that anger for good instead of bad. Utilize that anger to educate yourself and become something better. Utilize that energy to heal yourself so that we can be in a generation of healing instead of a generation of anger and victims to genocide. Yeah. Mm. Do you think that there is a movement among your generation uh, that, that really is awakening to the power you have, and that power for advocacy, for healing, for like rising up um, and lifting one another up compared to the like the previous generation or two. Do you what's occurring in your generation? Because I've talked to a number of people here in Warm Springs, and there something's going on. Mm-hmm. You know this awakening, this. Uh, empowerment and pride and like damn we're we're a strong powerful people yeah and I think that goes with community like Portland Portland Oregon Wellbride is like my home group like no matter what I'm going through and I'm having a hard time I go over there you know and I have a big Wellbride family over there 
and with the gift of each of us that we get to take from theirs that we start these fires you know i started a fire here in warm springs the well variety on thursdays we're trying to get one on the weekend for people to be there to learn about culture to be connected with our ceremonies and i think the difference is is a lot of us learn to fight and have anger and you know um and we just don't know what to do with it you know and now as time passed we're learning to have that anger but utilizing it for power, you know, and power to be resilient, power to educate ourselves, power to stand up for the next person, the power to not be selfish, to be selfless and to reach your hand out and help another person up the same way you learn to help to help yourself. And um, I don't think that we knew a lot of that because a lot of us don't know what we don't know. But as we start knowing things, we start learning things and we start um, teaching things to not just ourselves, but to other people. And I think it's just about educating and being loud. I know a lot of us have been loud. You know, we go all over. I went to Phoenix to share my story, you know, with Wellbrighty. And that was empowering to see so many people getting into recovery, you know, and um, wanting a better life, you know, and wanting to stand up and be activist for recovery, you know, and to help our people heal instead of leaving each other in the gutter that we want to pick each other up because we have hope. And we see the hope because we see each other, because there was once people that didn't believe in us, and we learned to believe in ourselves, so now we want to reach our hands out and help other people find that hope within. Mm. God, mm-hmm. that, man, that's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And that's, there's so much power in realizing that the gift I've been given, the gift you've been given, as we give it away, mm-hmm. it, it continues to strengthen the power within us. Yeah. And then it, it becomes a gift in the world yeah. to the people who, who um, are also looking for that way out. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, had, I had my moment of, you know, having been years active in my addiction and disease and having that moment of what, you know, for lack of a better term, grace, something showed up on my behalf mm-hmm. that I couldn't find. Mm-hmm. I had lots of people tell me, Jesus, you drink a lot. And when you do, you have perfected the art of being an asshole, mm-hmm. you know, and why don't you get help? And I couldn't for mm-hmm. a long time. And I had a moment on a Sunday morning that something showed up on and started started to to change my thoughts and my ways of of thinking and the desire came to like damn i i don't want this anymore yeah how do i find my way out mm-hmm. and um and now i get to be i i get to be on the other end of a phone call mm-hmm. when someone is calling saying dude can we talk yeah you know yeah yep. i get those phone calls too yeah and um what's powerful is we're learning to reach out and ask for help. One of the hardest things Mm -hmm. to say, like to admit that you're not strong enough to do it on your own. That's probably one of the hardest things to admit. Like we carry ourselves strong and we can fight Bigfoot or whatever, you know, and then um, admitting that we need help. That's like one of the hardest, you know, it's like pulling a tooth out of, you know, (laughs) out of yourself, you know, and when people call, you know, that need help, I'm like, wow, how powerful. I'm like, mm-hmm. that's really powerful, and I'm really proud of you mm-hmm. for calling because that's one of the hardest parts to do. And yeah. 
You know, some of them call back, some of them don't. But I always love encouraging them because a lot of people don't hear encouragement. A lot of people um, hear like how bad they look or what a, um, a disgrace they are or whatever. You know, you hear a lot of talk, even in my addiction, like I would hear all this comments, you know, about people would say about me. And I was ashamed to even come in the community, you know, at that point, because I'm like, nobody likes me anyways, you know. And I was in, embarrassed to go to my family because I knew that I was using and um, I felt like they would pick on me. I think it's just they wanted me to get sober and they were upset that I wasn't choosing them. I was choosing that lifestyle. And um, to me, in my brain, it wasn't I was choosing that lifestyle. I felt like I was trying to keep them safe from the things that I was involved in in that lifestyle. And also, um, I was trying to keep myself from wanting to kill myself, mm. you know, because I, I, when I was young, my mom taught me to believe in God, you know, and I loved God. Like, I got a big sliver in my hand, and I was just like, okay, pull it out. You know, God's going to protect me. So I didn't really care, you know, and I used to go on um, boat rides, and they would take me on the ski band. It would go under waves, under the water. Like, I wasn't scared because I was like, God loves me. He's not going to let nothing happen to me. And then life happened, and I got mad at God. And I was like, how could, you know, I loved you. And you said, if I love you, mm. you would protect me because I'm small. You know, I don't understand. You know, I don't have all the knowledge as an adult. And I was like, and you lied. Like, you, how could you say you care for me and you're letting all these things happen to me? You don't love me, and everything that I love, you take away from me. Like, what did I do to you? And um, I think the biggest revelation that I got in my head was that we all have a freedom of choice and that we all have that connection that we can connect with our higher power, whoever that is. You know, for me, it's creator. And um, I always pray to creator because creator is the one who has helped me all of my life. And humans are the ones that get to make their own decisions. So it's not really creator hurting people it's people hurting people and we're all living this is all of our first time living a human experience mm -hmm. so everybody it's their first time and everybody's learning along the way yeah i went through a really similar experience with with god mm -hmm. um you know i got to the point when i was younger i was so full of faith and desire and so full of you know wanting to walk in the world as a as a kind a righteous man right mm -hmm. and and then as i observed all the violence and the hip, hypocrisy and the greed and the you know the starvation mm -hmm. i got I, I got really disillusioned mm -hmm. and i i remember having a controversy from time to time and then one day i i picked up a newspaper and I'm reading this article, and the article is talking about the top, the wealthiest 249 families, mm -hmm. that if they just donated 4% of their wealth, mm -hmm. there would be no, no one would go hungry. Everyone would have a basic, uh, basic health care and a basic education and clean water mm -hmm. and plenty of, and enough food. Mm -hmm. And I thought, holy shit, I've been blaming God for all of this, and it, this is a human condition. Yeah. <laughs> so it started to like let God off the hook, so to speak. Yeah. And I began to have an experience, and I've realized how important that's been in my recovery. Mm -hmm. If I didn't, if I couldn't connect with higher power, mm -hmm. I, I don't 
I was never able to find the strength to do it on my own. Yeah. So. Yeah, there was a lot of times that I felt, well, well, my family don't want nothing to do with me. And I felt alone. And I remember one time in treatment, um, my counselor, one of the counselors asked me, he was like, what would happen? What do you think would happen if you let go of all your old friends and um, all your old ways of thinking? You know, you just let it go. And I was like, well, I'd be an orphan. He's like, why would you be an orphan? I'm like, because nobody loves me anyway. So if I let go of that lifestyle, then I would, would really have nobody that loved me. And he's like, well, what if that happened? Like, you didn't even have a choice that happened. And then um, it made me angry, and I started crying, and I ran out, you know, and then I just started praying. And then um, I felt my higher power say, you know, I call him creator, and I felt him say, if everyone gave up on you, I would still believe in you. So you would still have purpose. And so I walked back in there, and I'm like, well, if everybody gave up on me, I still believe in myself. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know where I'm going to be, but I believe in me. So, like, everybody can give up on me, but I'm not going to give up on myself. And that's why I'm sitting here in your office. And he's all, there she is. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is a moment. Yeah. What a powerful moment. Yeah. To be, con to, to be you know, to have that confirmation come from so deep within mm -hmm. and, and know that you're really not alone. Yeah. Even if everybody that you think should be supporting you stepped away. Yeah. Yeah, that you're really not alone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then over time in treatment, um, I started building trust with my family. I started using my money that I had to call them, um, setting up video visits. I stopped asking about who I, who, how, like everything about me, and I started asking how they were, how mm -hmm. their day was, you know. And so I started becoming less selfish, more selfless with my family, and I started building that trust over time. And my mom didn't want me to come home at all. And then um, I was getting ready to be released, and she's like, you know, I think you're doing really good. Like you sound really healthy. I would like for you to stay here for a few months and then get your own place later on. Uh, and I just felt like, you know. That's, that's part of the work. You know, you work on yourself and mm -hmm. you work hard every single day. And even though you don't know what you're doing, you're stepping into something new. You have faith that it's better than what you had. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 That, that, that process of regaining strength or regaining trust. Mm -hmm. I know I wanted it to happen a lot quicker than it did. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. I was hoping that my I'm sorry, I won't do it again mm -hmm. would mean something to some of the folks that had been harmed. Yeah. But it took it took it took what it took mm -hmm. and it and it wasn't were it it was no longer my words mm -hmm. that made the difference. Mm -hmm. It was how I was living my life. Yeah. And the consistency and the showing up when I said I was going to show up mm -hmm. and calling when I said I was going to call yeah. and and living into becoming a, a person that people can trust. Yeah. yeah. Because I was so hoping that, wow, I've been sober for 30 days. And mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, it took it took a hell of a lot longer than that. Yeah. There's yeah. times I had three years and two years. And I think it was just me always having that fear of, oh my gosh, I messed up again and catastrophizing it, you know, and 
2000, I believe it was 2005, I got sober and um, I was at NARA in Portland and um, I was doing super good. I stayed there for a whole year and I started feeling good about myself. And I think that was the first time I started learning about who I was as a native person. Mm -hmm. I grew up thinking I was half Mexican and half native, but I hung around um, majority of Mexicans um, all of my younger years, all the way up until then in my 20s, mid-20s. And then um, when I went to NARA, you know, something about the drum called me. And I heard my friends drumming, and I would just peek at them all the time. And then um, one day my friend was like, hey, you want to come drum with us? And I'm like, me? And they're like, yeah. And I was like, I don't know how to sing. And they're like, well, then you can learn. So I went on there, and then um, I finally learned my first song probably after a few weeks with them. And then we started getting going and singing for the state and singing for all these programs. And I remember one day I was sitting there and I've always felt like something was missing in my life. And it was for the first time that I felt like I found who I was. And I started crying and I was like, mm -hmm. this has been the missing piece my whole entire life. Like I am native, I'm indigenous. And knowing my culture and knowing my roots has really rooted me and grounded me. And then I um, really got into Native activism. And, you know, at, at that time I met um, Atwai Dennis Banks and the whole AIM crew. I became the president of the AIM chapter in Portland um, in 2007, late 2007. And then I went on the longest walk to and um, stood up for Native rights, sacred sites, hmm. and um, went across um, from California all the way to Washington, D.C., and we created a manifesto. And... Um, Dennis and all of them were my heroes. And, you know, when you're young, you never see your heroes make a mistake. And then seeing them make a mistake, you know, um, disheartened me because I was like, wow, this is my hero. And they have faults. Like, they're human, you know. It wasn't until I got older that I realized, like, hey, humans will always make mistakes. Humans are not perfect, regardless if that's your hero or not, you know. And, um I stepped back away from that, you know, and um, I was just so disheartened that my heroes, I guess, were human, you know, and I was like, man, if I was going to put up with people like this, I would probably just hang out with my old crew. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I was I went to a bar and ran into some guy I don't even know and ended up back in my addiction, you know, and selling drugs again because I thought it was a good idea, which wasn't, and ended up back in prison six months later. And um, I think that was just a life that I was accustomed to because I knew what, I knew what was going to happen. I knew how to handle people. I knew what to expect in that lifestyle. And um, I still didn't understand that there was something outside of that for me, you know, and... Um, so that was my first introduction to who I was as a Native woman. And as time grew, you know, and standing up for Native rights and stuff and hearing all the things that happened to us and where all this anger is coming from, not just from my childhood, but from generations, mm -hmm. you know, from my grandma's in boarding school and my grandma went through some traumatic things. And then my mom, when she got older, she tried to learn our language and speak our language. And my grandma would beat her and hit her and say, don't do that. You know, they're going to take you away. Like, do you want them to take you away and put you in a boarding school? You know, and so my grandma, probably that was protecting her. And because maybe that's was something that my grandma seen role modeled when she was young. And then so she did it to my mom. And I think that's how 
we lost our roots in being connected in that way. And then as I got older, I started getting connected to my roots and stuff. But the thing is, even though I relapsed, I feel like that seed was still there. And little by little, and being introduced to different people, like it was still being watered. Mm-hmm. And then um, this time, you know, I get to be on my res. I get to understand our ceremonies. I get to, you know, hold that drum and I get to sing our songs, you know, from here to help other people, you know, to help um, help them and light up their hearts and light up their homes and light up their lives the same way other people have sang those songs for me. Mm-hmm. You know, the elders that have gone, you know, and pa- crossed over, you know, they used to say, you need to learn this stuff because one day we're going to be gone and it's going to be on you. It's going to be on your generation to run these ceremonies. It's going to be on you to, to go to the houses and help and sing these songs for the people. And, you know, um, we always think, you know, that, no, they're always going to be a tomorrow until the tomorrow doesn't come. And then we realize, like, oh, my gosh, it is on our, us to start learning these songs and start standing up and helping our next generation to learn all this so it doesn't become extinct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How, how close has it been to the previous generation that have had that have been fluent in the language because the language is so important mm-hmm. to understanding the, the 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 can I call it the psychology the the ways of being mm-hmm. because the language your language is so different from English I've been listening to a Lakota elder speak of the language mm-hmm. and how English and Latin and other languages that l- have come down through the centuries that have become English are languages of lack. Yeah. And that's not the case mm-hmm. in indigenous languages, that that your language is a, a full of abundance and, and speaking into life mm-hmm. and from life. Mm-hmm. Has that been something that's continued to awaken you is the language and coming home to that as well? Yeah. And I think when I first moved here, one of the, like, I felt awkward and stuff. But the one, one of the greatest blessings is when my uncle said, hey, I just want to tell you, welcome home. Mm. And, you know, that really touched my heart and made me feel good. I'm like, you're right. This is my home, you know. And my son, when he comes home, you know, and he speaks our language, you know, um, I didn't know what chow meant. <laughs> and then I was like telling him something, asking him a question. He's all chow. And then so I asked my mom, I was like, what does that mean? She's like, no. <laughs> and I was like, oh. So to hear him, and he's only three, to be speaking right. words of our language, you know, means a lot, you know. And then I think a lot of us learn our language through the songs. Once you start learning those songs, I believe the ceremony comes alive. And um, when I got on the drum and I was singing in um, Nara, I would ask them, like, hey, what does this song mean? They're like, I don't know. And I was like, you ask anybody? And they're like, no, you know, I don't know if it's polite to ask. And I'm like, well, I would really like to know what the song means. And so I started asking people where the song originated. And they would tell us, and then I would tell them what the song meant. And then as we would learn what the song means, we, I could feel the strength within those mm. songs come out through us to the people. And I was like, do you feel that? And they're like, what? And I'm like, we know what this song means, so now we sing it with this pride, you know, in helping the people. And um, we can help ourselves, and not just ourselves, but the people, and we can respect 
what this is doing and actually have this ceremony, you know? Mm. And so I think when we um, sing our songs, our traditional songs here at home, and we learn the words of the songs and their meanings, because um, a lot of them have different meanings con- w- depending where they're, where they're singing or who they're singing by. They have different meanings to uh, different people. But once you start learning the dialect and um, really probably praying, praying about what that song means to you when you, you're singing it, and helping the people that it becomes alive. And then when we start seeing our talking in our language, it becomes alive. Um, one thing I learned from an elder lady, she said, you know, um, the creator is breath. So when whatever we say in, in our mouth and it comes out of our mouth, we're speaking with the creator, you know, and speaking for the creator. So really be mindful and um, cautious about what you say, even about yourself. Do you carry that with you? Most of the time, sometimes like I consciously, forget. Hey. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but most yeah. of the time, yeah, you know. And um, through even my recovery, I've always just wanted to give hope, you know, because I remember how hopeless I felt, mm. and that I felt like there was no hope for me. Like I was always going to be an addict. I was always going to. I didn't know anything else. And if it wasn't for that treatment and those wonderful counselors that really helped me and pushed me, you know, I was always like, I'm just going to go to the hole, screw this. I, I'm, you know, I, it was just because somebody called me out on my poop, you know, mm-hmm. and I was like, um, I don't like that. You know, immediately when anyone does that, I always want to fight them. And they're like, no, you're going to just sit in it. Wow. Yeah. And I didn't like that at all. And they would, one of my counselors was like, what would you like to say to her? You know, and then I started cussing and saying all these things that I would like to say back to that girl. And she's like, okay, now how could we say that respectfully? That she feels respected and that you feel like you still have your power and your strength and that they're not taking it away. So how could we word that? What words could we use? And that's, and then um, that's when I started learning that I don't have to be rude and disrespectful to have an appoint and to respect my boundaries and respect myself or other people mm. that I could use strong, respectful words to not only respect myself, but to respect other people and to still stand in my power. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that ability to communicate that powerfully mm-hmm. is priceless because most of us many of us anyway, learn how to be a bit passive aggressive where we don't say what we mean. And, and, and then the only way to say what we mean comes with such disrespect and, and the impact or the benefit that another person could receive or that I could be empowered by, by being honest is just gone. Yeah, It gets totally wasted. And the ability to communicate truthfully but do it with love and respect is is priceless. Mm-hmm. And it's a rare commodity in in this culture anyway, you know. Yeah. So what a gift you get to be to the people in your life. Yeah. It was it was hard. <laughs> it was hard. I had to be quiet. I had I got put on a contract and I couldn't say anything. And I had to sit there with my hands open. And I had to stand up in front of my whole class and be like, I'm open for feedback. And then everybody 
got an opportunity to tell me how my anger made them feel in the community. And um, because they realized that I had a hard time just letting people talk <laughs> wow. and hearing them, not trying to respond all the time. They're like, you just need to hear them. And um, every time I somebody confronted me, they're like, you are not allowed to say anything back. I want you to sit there and think about what they said, what you think, what you heard them say. And then we'll go over that. Mm. And so that's what really changed my mindset about like, oh, wow, I really hurt her feelings because I didn't hear her or validate that I actually hurt her feelings by coming up to her aggressively or by talking over her and not allowing her room to talk or picking on her or whatever Hmm. or trying to intimidate her, you know. And then I got an opportunity to humble myself and apologize and repeat back what they said that I did to them and be authentic in my apology. I can only imagine that at the beginning of that process, <laughs> it must have felt like you were dying inside. Yep. <laughs> and, and did it feel like ingenuine? Mm-hmm. Like you weren't being, you weren't really, you didn't mean that shit you were just saying to that person, yeah. like yeah. with the apologies and stuff. But, but you, how did you embrace it just to begin the process of being even willing to, to say those words of apology or, mm. you know, making making amends. Well, I wouldn't apologize unless I meant it. And wow. sometimes that took me like three months. Okay. And and within those three months, I, I would tell them, thank you for your feedback, and I'll take a look at that. And even that I meant F-E-R, whatever. But, <laughs> <laughs> but oh, like, as <laughs> I sat on it, and then the more I, s- I continued to grow in treatment, eventually I started saying, like, hey, because I had a definition of what I thought strong was, and then I had a new definition of what strength means to me in recovery. And um, I read that on my graduation, you know, and I said strength means the ability to stand in your true self you know, and to stand up for who you believe you are and to stand up for um, others and um, to allow others the ability to be human and to be individuals without trying to push your beliefs on them and at the same time standing up for your own beliefs and standing by them because they're mine. And um, because I think that takes a lot of strength, you know, to hear people out even if you don't agree. And... um, to just know that they're an individual and just because they have a difference of opinion doesn't mean like they're not worthy of a person or they're not worthy to be heard or they're not worthy to exist. Like, I think that's the beauty of humanity is that we're all different and we all have different things. And even in recovery, like there's so many of us that if one person doesn't connect with me, then they can connect with somebody else in recovery, you know? And I think that's the beauty of it is that there's so many of us that you don't have to just stay with one. Like there's so many, and you, and even if you get with somebody and you're like, hey, this isn't working. You know, I want, I want to start meeting other people. You know, that's perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. You know, because of course we want people to recover and feel safe. Yeah, in one of the twelve step programs, it talks about the importance of principles over personalities. Mm-hmm. That if I become a personality follower, I'm going to be led down the wrong road because mm-hmm. it won't be. I'll be looking to someone else for my strength, Mm -hmm. for my wisdom. But principles, Mm -hmm. we can follow principles 
and and then trust the wisdom and the guidance within me to to know what when those principles r- resonate yeah. and and then I'm not like dependent on another person's recovery in order for me to be engaged and experience my own. Yeah. I think that was one of the biggest fears is being a robot. Yeah. And that's what I told my counselors. I'm like, well, you know, you guys all say like, oh, you have to do this and you have to do that. It's like, well, how can I do that and be myself? Like, I don't want to be you, you know, and I'm pretty sure a lot of people don't want to be me, but I don't want to come in here and just be this robot like, what do I do now? What do I do now? You know, I've been living that all my life in the system. Like, oh, when do I go to bed? When can I shower? What can I eat? You know, when can I order snacks, you know, or whatever. And I I was so accustomed to people just telling me what to do that it just became the normal. And then when I was able to do things on my own, I'm like, yay, I got to do everything on my own. Okay, I'm going back to what I know. (laughs) I didn't try nothing new. Funny how that works. Yeah. <laughs> we think we're so liberated, and yeah. then we, we end up just doing the same thing over yeah. and over and over thinking again. We're step yeah. step back into our insanity, thinking that we've evolved somehow. Yep. And that's just kind of not how it works. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's you know since I've I've been attending some recovery meetings here in Warm Springs, mm-hmm. and it's been interesting, and. Um, because I've met some men that I've not known before, mm-hmm. and at least three or four times with the few people that I've met, you've been connected to them being at a meeting mm-hmm. or engaged in their recovery. How, what have you been, what have you been up to <laughs> here on the reservation that has you connected and and um, known as someone that 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 they can reach out and connect with. I think the when I got out in 2017, I came out and I I knew I couldn't go back to my old ways because it would be the same thing. And I knew I didn't want to let myself down, all the hard work that I did in there, and to let my family down. You know and um, I went to um, convention meetings, all women ones. Um, they used to have it at Kanita. And I was just like, my name's Benita. I'm an addict. I don't know what this looks like. I don't have any friends. And I just want to introduce myself. And that opened up doors for women to invite me to other conventions and one-on-ones and coffee and all that. And so I hit the ground running. And I got a job at Brightwood. And my main goal was to help people get into recovery. I wanted to be a recovery mentor. And so many years, I always talked about that. And then there was this girl in prison. She's like, you know, I want you to shut up. <laughs> Every time you say that, like, you're just right back here, you know? <laughs> and like, I, I was mad at her, but she wasn't lying. <laughs> so I couldn't be that mad. Uh-huh. But this time I was like, no, I'm going to make it. You know, I don't know what that looks like. And it's scary, but I'm going to make it. Like that treatment center liberated me it made me feel like I can do this without drugs. Like they took all my junk away from me and they pulled all my junk. I think the biggest turn thing in there was when she was like, what's a belief system you have? And I was like, that women are weak. And she's like, where'd that come from? And I'm like, oh, giving her all these like surfaced like things like, oh, they rat really easy or, you know, um, 
they're always running their mouth, but they get beat up. And she's like, nope, it's deeper than that. And I'm like, no, it's not. She's like, yes, it is. She goes, whatever that belief is coming from, like, you're going to cry. And I'm like, yeah, right. I'm not going to cry. And so we're sitting there. It was already two hours. I was getting mad because she wasn't going to let me leave. And then so I was like, okay, we're going to go back, 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 back. And it went all the way back to when I was kidnapped, when I was sexually abused and molested by my cousin. And I wasn't heard and I wasn't even validated. And like, I felt like I, my feelings were never validated. Like my feelings were always pushed to the side. And then that rape, you know, I feeling weak at that moment, you know, and um, having drugs and hanging out with gang members and stuff made me feel tough and learning how to shoot guns and all that stuff. And so I was like, it was because I felt vulnerable because I couldn't protect myself from being kidnapped and I Mm -hmm. couldn't protect myself from those things that happened. And I couldn't voice my opinion when I didn't feel like I was getting validated when I got molested. I go, I hated that. I hated that. And I didn't know have the words and I didn't have anyone to help me find that strength to stand up for myself, Mm. to say what I wanted because I didn't know what I wanted. I don't know what that looked like. And I think my family was raised like you just keep your feelings inside and you always carry a smile and just try to get through life the best way you can. Mm. And to me, like, those feelings were like, no, you need to, you need to get this out somehow, you know? And so I was crying and she goes, that's it. That's where it came from. And she goes, now we can work through this. Now we can change that belief system. And now I have strong women all around me. And, um, I, I actually got to be a recovery mentor in 2018. I worked at Best Care and I, I worked in an office. Like I just, I was like, I remember driving people to treatment, and um, I was like, man, you know, all those roads would trigger me, you know, because I used to drive up and down those roads. And uh, I was like, wow, I went to taking drugs on this road to taking people to treatment, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And I would be involved in recovery walks. I would be involved in all kinds of things. They used to have the hands across the bridge from Warm Springs to Madras, but Mm. that little bridge right there, and we'd Mm -hmm. sing right there and then have, like, some speakers right there. I was one of the speakers. It was I had three years that that time, and I just was so involved on inspiring hope to people because I knew how bad it felt to feel like I was worthless in the community, and I didn't want anyone to feel like they were worthless, regardless if they were using or not. Because one thing somebody said, like, be kind to everybody because if you're mean to people who are lost in their addiction, when they do want to get clean, who are they going to turn to? They won't want to turn to you because you've been making fun of them or making them feel shame about themselves. So if you're just kind to people just to be kind because that's who you are, mm-hmm. of course, those are going to be people that want to reach out to you. And, you know, I, I go to meetings. I used to drive people to meetings, do activities. Um, I drove people to meetings over here. You know, um, Aurier and Aldo had a really big fire here in the community with World Variety back then. It got super huge. And... Um, well, Bridie started getting really, really big over here for a second. Yeah. Yeah. You know, since I've been here mm-hmm. and going to meetings, um, one of the things that comes up in one of the um, uh, collect the one of the meetings that I attend um, for uh, service providers and things like that here. Mm-hmm it's often discussed the, the epidemic of addiction and alcoholism and, and yet recovery here there, 
the meeting, the recovery meetings I've been to mm -hmm. have been not attended mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. How does the flame get fanned to have that fire return? Does that, yeah. does that question make sense? Yeah, it does make a lot of sense. And when I didn't live on the res, I couldn't make sense of it because I didn't know what they were talking about. But living it, you know, um, every single day, I finally came to realize, like, what they mean, you know. And I think a lot of it is to do with um, people gossiping and talking down on one another, you know, with people in addiction. So maybe they're ashamed to even come to a meeting they don't want to be talked about or they don't want their their private talks to come out in the community. And me, I'm a high believer on anonymity, you know, and that's how I always tell people, like, is anonymity here? What stays here is here. Like, no telling to your auntie, no telling to your uncle or your cousin or your mom, anybody, you know, because there has to be a safe place, you know, and we call it a, a safe camp in Walbrighty, a safe camp where somebody can fully just be themselves and um, let everything that they want out without it being spread into the community. And I've heard a lot of that about people worried about um, anonymity and their stuff being um, leaked out into the community. And um, so I think that's part of it. And maybe some of it they just don't know or they're not ready. Mm -hmm. And so I have been trying to get a flame and I want to start, you know, doing more in-person active Wilbrighty stuff so people can get to know us, you know, and um, I think a lot of people, not a lot of people, individuals have a problem with addicts because <laughs> I heard somebody say, well, oh, you addicts, um, are those addicts, that, I don't know if they knew I was an addict, they're like, those addicts just steal and rob people's houses, you know, I don't like them, you know, and um, AA is better than NA, then I was like, I'm, a, I'm an NA person, like, I don't do that, you know, I was like, I'm actually a good person, you know, how do we expect people to overcome their addiction and that stigma if that's something we're always placing on each other, mm -hmm. you know, and um, I was like, if you probably wouldn't know me and my addiction, you probably wouldn't like me now, but if you take time to get to know me and my recovery, you'll see what a dramatic change I've made, you know, and people in recovery, they make dramatic changes, you know, um, I've seen it, mm -hmm. I've seen it, and all they need is a spark of hope, and when they can't find it, for us to help them find it themselves, you know, and I've always been somebody, I, and well, Bridie, it's like, I can walk this road with you, but I cannot walk this road for you. Mm -hmm. And I stand on that, you know, and because one day, you know, what if something happens to me? We want each other to know that they can walk that journey on their own and that they have everything and everything that it takes to continue on that red road and finding who they are, you know, and healing as a person. You know, we can't change the past, you know, and the things that happened to us when we were younger, that's not our fault, you know, and we did the best we could with the knowledge that we knew. But as we grow and we evolve and we do get knowledge, it's our responsibility to heal that, mm. you know, and it's our responsibility to heal that so our children don't have to have that in their lives. Wow. Mm. That gift you're preparing for your son's generation mm -hmm. is, again, the word that comes to mind is priceless. Um, yeah, I think the the recovery community, be it Wellbriety or other like twelve step programs and things like that, my path, my transformation wouldn't be what it what it what it has been 
without that community. And primarily, it's been other men Mm -hmm. that I've been able to connect with in times in sobriety where I've gone through, like, I don't know if I'm going to make it through this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, or arriving at getting close to the fuckets. Yeah. And maybe going back out. I've been willing to share in meetings and primarily men's meetings. And I've always had a brother come up and say, let's go grab coffee. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let me share with you where I've been, how I've walked through it. And maybe you can find some strength Mm -hmm. to get through this without picking up again. Mm -hmm. And that connection, that power among and with our brothers and sisters that are on this road, man, yeah. there I've never experienced anything like it yeah. ever. Mm-hmm. And I've been involved in faith-based type of gatherings and fellowships, mm-hmm. but there's something special, something so profound and powerful about the way we walk with one another in such honesty mm-hmm. and willingness to just be in acceptance to whatever each of us are going through. Mm-hmm. I've never experienced that before. Yeah, me neither. Yeah. I remember my first sponsor, I had to do my fourth step and I was doing everything. I was like, oh, I'm just going to take it in the sweat and I'm just going to give it to creator. Like, why do I have to tell people? And then I'm like, oh, well, I'm just going to pray about it and say it in my prayer, you know, and then I just felt saying, you know what? Just tell your sponsor, like, what's the big deal? (laughs) (laughs) It took me like six months to finally do my fourth step. (laughs) And then she was like, okay, honey, just go go on with it. You know, she was uh, an elderly lady. And she's like, but I just had this connection because she's so raw. It made me feel like I could be raw. And so I would tell her. And then each time, bad thing I would say that I'd done, I would look at her face. And she's like... Oh, that's nothing. I'll tell you what I did later <laughs> <Yeah>. on. <laughs> I had I had the same experience, yeah. <laughs> and I've sat with I've sat with men that have been doing their fourth and fifth step with me, right? Yeah. And and they're I'm watching them give me the look yeah. about Am I going to turn away in disgust and disdain? Yeah. Or am I still in the game? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so that experience, I think, alone, and because I had an amazing sponsor, made me break free too about all the biases I had of how I'm going to be treated and how I'm going to be judged or how Mm. I'm going to, you know, um, yeah, be judged. I think that was the scariest thing of how I'm going to be judged. And over time, what I have learned is if even if people judge you, it's just an opinion. Mm. Like who you know you are within, that's what matters. Who you carry yourself as, that's who matters. How you carry yourself and how you see yourself, that's what matters because everyone's going to have an opinion about everything in life. But take my uncle Denny always says, take what you can use and throw out the rest. Mm. If you can use it to evolve and grow, then take it, even if it hurts. But if you can't use and evolve and it just makes you bitter and angry, let it go because it has no use for your future. You know, there may be someone that's listening to our conversation, Mm -hmm. Anita, that, that, when you talk about like knowing yourself and being true to yourself and letting, letting people's other people's opinions go, Mm -hmm. they're thinking, how the hell do you do that? Yeah. How have you arrived at that place 
where the opinions of others that can like crush us if we let them. Mm -hmm. Where have you found the strength to know who you are within yourself so that when those opinions come, because they do, mm-hmm. that you're able to take what might be valuable. There may be some value in it, but set aside maybe the intention that person had to, to wound you. Yeah. First, I think of who is it coming from? And does this has this person showed that they genuinely care about my life and that they genuinely care about me? And is this information thrown at me to help me or to belittle me Hmm. and I separate that and if it was meant to belittle me or it came out of anger from them then I'm I'll I'll be like okay maybe they're having a bad day or you know um maybe something I said touched them somehow I don't make excuses for them but I I kind of just give them that space and that respect whatever they're going through and I remind myself like their junk isn't on me to fix and I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a person that um, I can feel how people are feeling without them even saying anything. And um, I think that comes from the streets, you know, where you have to figure out who's a danger in the room, who's not, who's sneaky in the room, who's plotting on you and who's not. And so I still automatically do that in my life. And so I can feel energies. Like if you don't like me, I can, I can tell, I don't tell you, but I can tell that you don't like me, you know, and um, I, I don't see no reason why I should tell people like, Hey, I don't think you like me or whatever, (laughs) but I just, you know, just keep a distance at them. But, um, you got to just remember, like, is this coming from a genuine place or not? Mm. And has this person ever came at you with some genuine love or not? And is what they're telling you said to elevate you as a person and, and to, um, even, you know, sometimes people tell us things that we don't like to hear but it's true. Like my sister, she told me, you know, um, you, um, you look skinny. Um, you look really bad, you know, and I was in my addiction and I'm like, so you're rude. And she's like, well, we just want you home. And how come you're not eating? And I'm like, because nobody, everywhere I go, nobody has nothing to eat. And she's like, well, we love you, but we don't want you around when you're like that, but you're always welcome to come to the house and eat. Mm. And, and even though she was telling me something straight up, and, and it was hurtful for me at the time because I knew I looked like poop. But um, I knew that she loved me. And compared to somebody saying, like, um, like just a random person or, you know, even somebody who you really didn't feel like liked you anyway, comes out and says, you know, you're always been a junkie and you'll always be a junkie. Like that kind of stuff. And is, did you hurt that person some way, you know, so for them to feel like that and they still have that – that hurt and stuff that you threw at them or is this just somebody that just is throwing shade on you? And so um, some people take a longer time to um, accept your apology than others. And then some people are just there to kind of destroy you because they see that light that you're starting Mm. to have, you know. And once you start finding your light, people will start calling you show off. They'll start trying to (laughs) throw things at you to make you feel low. But just remember, like, you're elevating from that. You know, just shine and if you're shining with the light, then hang out with other people that have light, you know. And something that I've learned probably within the past year is wherever I want to be, hang out with those people, even if they're doing better than me, because how am I supposed to evolve if I'm just hanging out with the people where I'm comfortable at? If you want to grow, you hang out with people that are doing better than you. 
so that you can learn from them. And then eventually you'll be one of them so you can teach other people mm-hmm. that are rising up after you to be on that level. Yeah, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. That's wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and the opportunity to be with people, people that are really on the path of like growth mm-hmm. and expanding their experience of life mm-hmm. in a good way mm-hmm. are always welcoming Mm-hmm. to people like you and I that are curious and having a desire to grow ourselves. Yeah. They never, they're not clickish. Mm-hmm. They're not exclusive. Mm-hmm. They're always welcoming. Mm-hmm. And I've always been invited into people who are truly on the path of love, acceptance, inclusivity, mm-hmm. always. Yeah. And so we get to learn how to be that for other people. Yeah. 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 I always learn that life is your teacher. And Mm -hmm. um, when you're ready to learn, then a teacher will be presented to you, Mm -hmm. the right teacher. Yeah. That's going to help you evolve. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us just want what we want, what we want, and we want it right now, which comes from addiction. But what I learned is the best things happen over time in work, in patience, Mm -hmm. you know, and um, evolving into, you know, a business leader evolving into a mother like that's hard motherhood's hard you know just here's your baby good luck hey. <laughs> <laughs> and you know they keep you up all night and you know probably before that you're like there's no way i could like sleep four hours and wake up and then sleep four hours and wake up or you know um they just teach you that you're so much capable than what you think you are and i think my children because i have an older one he's 20 I think they taught me a lot about unconditional love and empathy. Mm. And um, now I take care of my mom. You know, she's an elder, and that's taught me a lot of empathy, you know. And, of course, all of us have our hard days and our good days and our sad days, you know. Um, But we all come together, you know. And the most beautiful blessing that I have seen within this year has been my family come together. Like we used to when my brother was alive. And the other day when it was my mom's birthday, um, we had her birthday November 12th. And um, all the family fit in my home. (laughs) We had a fun time. Um, We sang, um, uh, my mom loves um, Washa, and we sang some songs for her, lit up the home. And it was the first time like seeing us all together. And we Mm -hmm. squished in my little house. (laughs) We had fun. We all bought food and looking at my mom's smile. And then all of us have our new kids come in, you know, and they all migrated to one room like they always do. And I was like, right on. This is so cool. (laughs) You know, and it brings me to tears because we haven't had that in like a long time. And of course, some people were missing, you know, but um, Mm -hmm. um, for the most part, like we came together. And, yeah. and that was beautiful for all of us to see and for my mom at her old age to be able to experience again. Yeah. What was that like for it to be in your home? It just, did it's you still, e- Did you ever think that that would ever happen? No, I, I was like on a, like a happiness high, oh, you know, for man. the like I still think about it and I get happy because mm. it's something that's really special for my mom and what I'm learning through life too, that family is the most important you know, and we all have our ups and downs and we have our fights and we stick together, you know, when it matters, mm-hmm. when it really matters, you know, to any of us, we stick together. And I stuck my brother's picture up and none of us have stuck a picture up or been able to without breaking down and um, having a hard time. 
and I finally stuck a picture of him up and I was like mom it's time he like we look at his picture and he brought us a lot of good memories you know mm. and he gave us a lot of good wisdom and so everybody's happy so I stuck him up there on my wood stove so everybody could see him and passed him around everybody's happy they're like oh it's so cool yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah those those things that have been so painful can be part of our healing mm-hmm. yeah yeah I've, I've almost lost my life a few times um i wrecked um i wrecked it was it wasn't funny but i wrecked and um i was getting a present for my oldest son's birthday and it was black ice i thought since everybody was driving fast that i could drive fast in the the car all i remember is the car spinning out of control coming from bend under that last bridge and and i don't remember anything after that and the next i remember i was in the hospital and my i had a concussion and it was funny because um i kept waking up i'm like hey did i get a wreck and my sister's like yeah she's like you asked me like a ton of times and then the doctor was like hey you know um i think you're gonna have to stay i'm like no my son's birthday you know and when i before that I remember seeing my brother, and um, I was telling him, like, hey, what are you doing? He's like, nothing. And then um, I was, like, looking back, but I couldn't see the earth, and we're on some wheat. And then I was like, "Um," I I crossed over, Han. He's like, yeah. And I was like, I was sad. And he's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, well, I'm who's going to take care of my mom? Like, what about my, what about Dominicio? Like, he's going to forever say, like, oh, my gosh, my mom died on my, birthday or the day before my birthday like how awful you know and who's going to take care of my mom you know and I was like can I just see if they're okay and he's like no and I just remembered like tears going down my eyes because I couldn't see anything he goes well it's not your time and I'm like no I'm just going to be really sad because I want to see them but I'm ready to go you know I'm ready to go and he's like no it's not your time and then I woke up in the hospital wow and um I was in a domestic like uh, a year ago like a year and two months ago and I got a concussion from that one, and I was almost strangled to death by my partner at that time. And I remember thinking, like, don't let me die in my home. You know, my mom can't walk. My baby was only two. And I was like, don't let me die like this, you know. And, no, like, I I used to laugh at scary movies because when they would get choked or whatever, I was like, why don't they just scream? Or, But literally when you're choked, you, you can't breathe, you know, and um, you can't yell you can't talk you can't nothing you know and um by the grace of god i got to live through that and um i just feel like god has helped me through my life and helped me live for a purpose and if that's just to give hope to the people then it's to give hope to the people and to light something on fire so that their fire fire will continue generations and generations Mm. after us and so my goal is to always help people that don't know how to help themselves but they have the power within to do it mm-hmm. part of that fire is the wellbriety yeah. community here mm-hmm. um share you know when the meetings are and and where people can if if someone locally is listening to this yeah. and they're they're looking for help and a community to be with where where do the uh Wellbriety meetings happen. We have one, only one. It is on Thursday, six p.m. at Hailuki, and that is the senior home, um, over by the trailer courts. And it's six p.m. to seven thirty. We do open up with washat 
um, when we open up the meeting to light up the meeting and then we start in on the meeting. Um, it still needs a lot of support, you know, and um, but we're trying to get one also on the weekends. We're trying to see, um, we're still waiting for a call back to see if we can get one on the weekend so we can get some other people in there. And um, we're an amazing community. There's a small group of us, but I highly believe that once we all start coming back into our roots and wanting to learn and wanting to heal ourselves, that we will connect, mm. you know, and, and that's my biggest hope for our reservation is to like not worry about the outside clutter and the judgments, but to realize that we are meant for so much more. And that's why so much is going against us because mm. we have something, we have something, a purpose, a big purpose and once we learn to break down that wall and say, no, I am taking my power back and I have been created for a purpose, rather that's breaking generational trauma, healing your family or whatever that is, like you'll be powerful and it wouldn't matter what people say because people would see your character and they would be like, no, that's, that's a, an amazing person. And the best part of that is you get to look in the mirror and it's like, I'm putting in this work and I am an amazing person mm -hmm. and I have been built for a purpose and um, I have a right to live and I have a right to recover. I have a right to feel comfortable in my own skin and I have a right to um, love myself, mm -hmm. you know, regardless, like we are not our mistakes, we're our healing. You know, and all our mistakes are in the past. Like our future is like right now and in front of us, you know. And one person said, don't look at your past unless you're learning from it. That's the only time you should be looking back there. And right now you got the present and don't miss out on your family. Don't miss out on your loved ones and the lessons that we gained today. And that's the whole reason why I built World Ridey because I felt like we needed something that brought our traditions and our culture and connected us in that way, along with recovery and a mm -hmm. place to belong. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if if people choose to walk through that door, you will be there to greet them and welcome them home. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. so good. <laughs> well, Benita, I don't know how we could have this be any richer than it has been but i want to give place give space for you if you have any closing thoughts or something you would want to speak in you know into the lives of the people that are listening to to wrap this up and bring at least our this first conversation to a close because mm -hmm. i think there will be opportunity for us to continue this yeah. conversation so I think the biggest thing is that there is no life too bad to heal and there's nothing so bad in any of our lives that we can't heal and that we can always take our power back one day at a time. And, and I think that's the best part is like all we got to worry about is today in this present moment. And um, in my early recovery, all I thought about was okay, I'm going to make it till lunch when I was having a hard time. And then once I hit lunch, okay, I'm going to make it to dinner. Once dinner hit, I'm like, okay, I'm going to sleep on it. And the next day, you know, the thing about emotions is that they don't last forever. Like they'll come in 10 minute spurts or whatever. And those are the times we reach out to our sponsors. Those are the times we reach out to our recovery community. Hey, I'm having a hard time. I am really triggered right now. You go out and have coffee. You go out and journal. You go out and do hiking. I love hiking. Smith Rock is one of my favorite places. But I just want people to know that you have a light inside of you mm -hmm. waiting to shine. 
And even though the world has tried to beat you down and make you feel like you're not worthy, you are. You're perfectly made and you're beautifully made. And I know there's hope for every single one of us. Wow. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Benita, for just gracing this, this, these moments for all of us to hear your story and, and be able to like receive from the life you're walking, mm -hmm. the life you're living and the gift you're giving to your people, to your son, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> to your mother, um, and those in the community that, that know who you are and know they can pick the phone up and call you yeah. and you'll be there to answer the answer the call yeah i so, think it's anonymity yeah always keeping people's stuff safe yeah absolutely you know? and i always yep. pray over them and i just keep their stuff safe and i never make them feel judged mm. you know because i know how bad i felt when i felt judged all the time you know and so i just always want to always create a safe camp for everybody to be able to say what they have to say and just stay there safe camp and a yep. warm fire yep <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much benita thank you for having me mm -hmm. <laughs> i can't help but think that those of you who stayed to the end are very very glad that you did the inspiration the power the authenticity and vulnerability just inspire us lift us up to live lives of purpose, of love, of light. Yeah, we all get to do that. It's the real deal. And no matter where we've come from, we get to begin today to tell ourselves the truth, to walk in light. It reminds me that I'm not alone that I walk the path in community. I get to do and live who I am with authenticity because I don't do it alone. I get to do it by myself. There's nobody that's going to do it for me. There's no one that's going to do it for you. But we don't have to do it alone. As we bring this to a close, I want to again thank Trevor Hall for being able to grace our introduction with his song, Blue Sky Mind. And then I also want to thank my beautiful, special friend, <laughs> incredible friend, Jay Pinto, for We Breathe the Same Air. And then as we come to a close, join us beginning January 11th. Thursday, January 11th at 6 p.m. for Shri Pono's Healing Circle. Come and join us. Become part of a community who walk together, walk toward healing, and walk toward peace.